Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 30. So again, Matthew 26, verses 1 through 30. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in uh, the chairs in front of you and turn to uh, page 781. All right, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished all, all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of these twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went out to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came, up to, came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare, you, uh, prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one, and, uh, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who, was, uh, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink, drink it with you, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you, and it's good to be here, worship with you. That being said, uh, let's pray and begin. Guide us, O oh God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Pastor Paul mentioned this already, but we are in our Lenten season. That's 40 days of uh, Lent before Easter. This is the first Sunday of Lent, and we had our Ash Wednesday service this past Wednesday. For those of you who uh, were here last week and this Wednesday, I had mentioned that we're doing this 40-day Bible reading. I am very, very much pleasantly surprised, but surprised nonetheless that so many people have taken me up on reading the Bible every day for 40 days. So you can have um, the whole thing, which is Old Testament, uh, Torah and the prophets, Old Testament wisdom, uh, New Testament gospels, and New Testament uh, acts and epistles. So there are four sections, but you could just take a section. If you just want to take the New Testament and read the next 40 days, do so. And today in our members meeting, we're going to uh, announce our release of the app and we have a CGS app that Jubin took care to make another uh, little icon in the app that if you click it, it shows you what day it is today, what the reading is. And if you click on the reading, it'll just open up the passage for you. So that's pretty amazing. I'm really happy that so many people are excited to read the Bible, do fasting, but feast too. So I suggest that you do as well. Why is this important for us? Because we are all, whether we know it or not, inundated with an idea of what is good already. We already think this is good and this is bad. The challenge that the Bible gives us is, why do you think this is good? Why do you think it's bad? Who said that? Where did you come up with that? And even last week when we talked about goats and sheep, and so when goats were put on the left and sheep were on the right, in our world, it's a different idea, is it not? Is it not? When you want to say something bad about a person, you go, stop being sheep. Think for yourself. If you want to say something good about somebody, you go, ah, oh, this person's the GOAT, which is an acronym for greatest of all time, but this person's a GOAT. But where the way Jesus puts it is completely different from what the secular world sees. And so we must be challenged on our idea of what is good and what is bad because what the world says is good and bad doesn't necessarily mean it's good or bad. What shows us what is good or bad? Is it not the word of God? Is it not the voice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And he's the one that is teaching us today. And this is what we must pay attention to. If your hearts are open to something, then should it not be the word of God? And so we are in this portion now. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, that was a common formula that Matthew used Whenever it says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that means it was the end of a discourse. So this is the end of the fifth and final discourse, the Mount of Olives discourse, or the Olivet discourse. This is what he says to his disciples after. In verse 2, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus finishes his final and uh, discourse, and he gives his disciples the fourth, his fourth major passion prediction. Passion by passion, we mean, of course, the suffering of Christ. Here's the irony. And it wouldn't have been lost by the disciples or the readers of Matthew who've been following along. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah King, judge over all creation, is about to be judged. Just in two days is the Passover. 
And so it must be at least Tuesday night or very, very early Wednesday because the Passover would begin on Thursday afternoon with the slaughter of the lamb. And so this is the first time we see that Jesus is revealing that he will be delivered up to be crucified the same time they will be slaughtering the Passover lamb. In verse 3 it says, Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Just as in the previous passion predictions, the chief priests and scribes are now definitively acting and plotting to kill Jesus, but not during the feast. Why not during the feast? Because they would be right in speculating that right now there are about five times more people in Jerusalem during this feast than any other time, and it could spark, especially because we know that people saw Jesus in the very least as a Messiah figure to a certain degree, and that could set off riots, and that would disturb the whole city, just like any kind of news of fear would disturb a whole system or city or even nation. Be afraid, you know. So they, they were also afraid. So they would need an opportunity then to find Jesus when he was relatively alone and the crowds aren't present. Here there's a little switch. It says here in verse 6, now. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, this may not have been in chronological order, but because, because the same instance is in John chapter 12, in John chapter 12, we see that this anointing of Jesus happened six days before Passover. So the question, if you are an astute reader of the word, why this discrepancy? Why this insert if it's not in chronological order? Matthew and Mark, but especially Matthew, tells this narrative in successive themes. There's a theme going on. And Matthew's accounts of events, and this is just a reminder, Matthew's accounts of events are much shorter than any other gospel account because they are leading up to a point. It's like giving you the minimum amount of detail so that I could get to the main point. And that's why he won't describe all the events that Mark or Luke or even John would describe. He will leave out names, and for good reason. He doesn't want to veer to the left or to the right because every detail that you will see in Matthew leads to a point. So that's why we can't miss any point here. Otherwise, you'll miss why Matthew is writing these things. So after Jesus gives his fourth passion prediction, we are to recall what happened in Bethany. In Bethany, he was in the house of Simon the leper, presumably because he healed this leprous person because if he was still a leper, no one would have stayed there. And we know from John chapter 12 that the woman mentioned here is none other than Mary, who was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And Lazarus was the person that he raised from the dead. But in Mark chapter 14, we know that Mary didn't simply pour the alabaster flask of perfume over Jesus' head, but that she broke it. So this per perfume of pure nard 
was presumably from a nard plant, which is native to India. And this pure concentration would have been very, very costly. In John, Judas is recorded as saying, this could have been sold for 300 denarii. And in Mark, we see the disciples note the same thing. This could have been sold for at least 300 denarii. 300 denarii was about a year's worth of wages. So think of your year's salary, and that's how much this bottle of perfume cost. Your year's salary before taxes. That's how much this perfume cost. The alabaster jar that is mentioned would have probably been made in Egypt because that's where alabaster came from. And if it came from Egypt, then it was hand-carved, and it would have been considered an extremely precious, precious and delicate item. You wouldn't store just anything in this alabaster jar. You would only store what is very precious, and that's why this jar had pure nard or perfume or ointment in it. The way the bottle would have been made was that it wouldn't have been able to have been poured out like this. All you had to do was open up the, open up the jar, put your finger on top and just put one drop on your finger and then, you know, do one of this jam. Uh, but you could do that and you would have been set to go for the whole day. What Mary did, however, wasn't just this, which would have sufficed. What Mary did was she broke the top of the bar, uh, the jar, excuse me, and poured it out on Jesus. Mary broke the jar, and it signals at least two things, right? She wanted to pour out all of it. And number two, there's no going back. There's no going back. There's no holding back. Mary would pour all of this on Jesus' head, and if you read John, it would go all the way to his feet, and she would wipe his feet with her hair. Now, if you look at all these details that the gospel accounts put together, this seems quite unnecessary, right? I mean, if one drop, this is pure, concentrate, this is not diluted, like uh, our communion wine is diluted, or the wine even back in that day would have been diluted by water. We do it with grape juice. But this is not diluted at all. This pure nard, if one drop did the job, why waste the whole bottle? Why this extra show? That might be what you were thinking. This is, in fact, the very response of the onlooking disciples. In John, we see that it is Judas who specifically complains, but in Mark, we see that all the disciples are indignant saying this, and here, Matthew, we also see that all the disciples are indignant, meaning they are angry. They are angry. That's indignance. Angry. They're mad. We're eating. We are enjoying our time. Mary busts in and destroys our sense of smell. You know, half of eating is smell, and we can't smell any of this anymore. Not only that, what a waste. You could have sold what you've had, and that would have been at least a year's salary, and give that to the poor. How terrible. Think of the poor people. And in Bethany, especially at that time, there would have presumably have been thousands of poor people. 
Also, because of the Passover season, you would have speculated there would have been even more. And then you were thinking, you could just look outside, look at them, starving. And then the indignance, the anger goes up, right? You wasteful, inconsiderate, and stupid. And then these things would start to come up. And Jesus, it says in verse 10, was aware of the indignance by his disciples. And this is what he says to them in verse 10. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble or bother the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you, will always have, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Jesus tells his disciples to stop bothering her and tells them that what Mary did is actually a beautiful thing. You know how when you're in your own kind of echo chamber or in your own room, you watch the news, you either get more and more scared, more and more angry, unless something else gets inserted, new information. If you don't have new information, you'll just get more and more angry or more and more scared. That's who we are as humans. I don't care what it is. Whatever you see on the news, it could be disease, it could be politics. If you're, own, if you're in your own echo chamber, you'll just get more and more scared or more and more angry. And this is exactly what was happening. But there's an insertion, and Jesus inserts his word. And he tells the disciples, stop bothering her. This is actually a beautiful thing. And proceeding to explain why, he states that you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now again, this does not mean we ought not to help the poor. Obviously, it doesn't mean that because the Bible is clear that followers of the one true God ought to help the poor. Deuteronomy 15.11 and many other verses that I've mentioned over the course of the weeks. But what does it mean that he would say this? It means that there is a finite period that Jesus is with them. There is an impending departure, and Mary knows this and acts accordingly. She acts in faith. Now, while the passage doesn't specifically say that Mary did this knowing that Jesus would soon leave them, there is no reason not to believe that this is what she believed. Jesus told the disciples four times about his impending crucifixion. He was going to die. And Mary does what she can to honor God. And Jesus verifies this by saying that by pouring this ointment on him, she is preparing him for his burial. And then he gives this amen statement. Might I remind you again, anytime Jesus says truly here, that's translated from the Greek, amen, which we know as amen, which means this is Definitely going to be true. And he goes, truly, amen, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And it's true. This story is in three of the four gospel accounts, and wherever the gospel is preached, we do see this story being told. But why? Jesus, who is humble and lowly in heart, as he said so in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he's not saying this out of pride 
but with an absolute certainty of his identity. He deserves lavish worship. He deserves this lavish and extravagant outpouring of worship. The worship that God deserves aren't just scraps from your table. They're not just leftovers of whatever you had, and then you're like, you know what? I got some change left from my 20. Let me give it to God. What kind of service does God deserve? How are we to sing his praises, pray the prayers, read and listen to his word? Mary shows us this in her extravagant display of honoring God, and Jesus deserves it. Another point I'd like to make is that there is a time, and that time is limited. You know, this gathering of the saints isn't just any time you want. There is a set time. The time to serve God and worship Him isn't just when you're comfortable. There is a set time. And after that set time, that time will pass and it will be too late. So truly, this story is still told wherever the gospel is proclaimed because who else bestowed on Jesus such lavish and deserving worship while he was here on this earth? In verse, verse 14, it goes on, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas Iscariot is specifically mentioned as one of the twelve. He had unlimited access to Jesus these last three years, and presumably he knew him and all the other disciples incredibly intimately. He would go over to the chief priests and give them that opportune moment that they were looking for that they could arrest Jesus and kill him. How much? For how much? And the contrast is inescapable. On one hand, we see Mary give, in one act of worship, a bottle of perfume worth 300 denarii. On the other hand, Judas gives up Jesus to be crucified and killed for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces or coins would have been 30 denarii, because denarii is a silver coin, but at best 30 tetradrachm. And 30 tetradrachm would have been about four months' wages. So at best, it's four month wages. 30 denarii, you have 30 days of wages, which is about five weeks' worth of wages. So from five weeks to four months' worth of wages, he gives up Jesus or plans to give up Jesus to be crucified. No matter what you think, that contrast is inescapable. It's an estimate far, far below the 300 denarii. But the significance of the 30 coins or the silver coins would have thrown the Jewish reader back. And this is why it's called 30 coins, not just 30 denarii. It would have thrown the 
Jewish reader back to Exodus chapter 21, verse 32. And it says, if an ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver or 30 coins of silver, and the ox shall be, ox shall be stoned. 30 pieces of silver was the value of a slave if they were accidentally killed by an ox. And this is what Judas betrays Jesus for. In verse 17, it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now we come back to current day, okay? Remember we were in Bethany? We come back to current day, and it is the following day, the first day of unleavened bread, which is the day before the Passover. So the feasts and Passover needed to be held in Jerusalem. That was their custom and tradition, so they needed to do that. So they were in Jerusalem. And so the disciples asked Jesus, where are you going to stay? Because you can't go back to Bethany, right? And Jesus somehow made arrangements to stay at a certain, a certain man's house. And so they prepared for the Passover. The Passover lamb was actually killed the day before the actual day of Passover because on that night they would eat the Passover lamb. This was called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. But this whole weekend would also be referred to as the Passover as well. We can go over more details in Mark, if you read Mark's account. But Matthew just puts the minimum amount, once again, the minimum amount of info so that we can get to this part in verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now everyone is eating the Passover meal because they would have needed to wait until after sundown to eat it. And then Jesus drops this bombshell. Amen, truly, amen, one of you will betray me. This makes all the disciples extremely sad. And one by one they start asking him if it's them. And Jesus gives them this somewhat cryptic answer. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. But give it some thought. It's not so cryptic. The person that is going to betray him is someone who shares a common dish. It's someone who's extremely close to him. He's a friend. And this would heighten the enormity of the betrayal. Jesus then pronounces a woe to the man that would betray him it would have been better if he had not been born. Consider how terrible it would be if you treated the president or a king as a hired hand. 
how much more so if you treat God as a slave? But how much even more so if God treated you first as a friend? So Judas asks Jesus, not calling him Kyrios or Lord, but calling him Rabbi. Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus gives him an answer that would have been somewhat ambiguous to those that are around him, but not to Judas. It would have, in the very least, given him a shock. And so when I read this, even now, I can't help but to see mercy at the tip of Jesus' lips, offering Judas while he still has a chance to repent. In verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and we had given thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I will tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink anew with you in my father's kingdom. After this, we are shown Jesus giving the institution of the Lord's Supper. There are teachings of the institution of the Lord's Supper in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and First Chronicles. Or first, excuse me, First Corinthians. And while they may all differ slightly in their formulations, one thing is abundantly clear: Jesus commands his disciples to remember and commemorate. Not his birth, not his life, not his miracles, but his death. In his death, Jesus would bear the sins that you committed against God, bearing the punishment that you rightly deserved, but also putting on you the righteousness and perfect life that he gave, that he lived giving you new life in the Spirit. And so in the remembrance of death, of his death, there is a promise of life. He promises his disciples that he would drink wine again in the Father's kingdom. That's why the Lord's Supper, which we are about to partake in, and again, this is only for people who have been baptized into the faith. The Lord's Supper for Christians points both to the past and the future. It points to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, his sacrifice for us. But it also points to the messianic banquet to come in the parousia. And every time we take communion, we are acknowledging that we are in this middle portion between what was done for us on the cross and what we are preparing for ourselves for the coming banquet. That is why every time we take communion, we are saying, behold the lamb. Behold the true lamb who died for our sins and washed us clean in his blood. Behold the lamb. Now before I close and we go into this time where I open up the table, I want to remind you of two portions of scripture. One is in the Old Testament and one is in the New. And in the Old Testament, it's in Exodus chapter 24. 
Exodus chapter 24, it's a passage that we went over in our sermon series. But in Exodus chapter 24, it says Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. It's like if I took um, the cup and the wine and I just threw it on you, right? And this is what he said after he took the blood and threw it on the people. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadam, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. That was a pointer, if you remember. What did it point to? Now I'm going to read from Revelation. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is our prerogative. This is our purpose. While we still have breath in our lungs, None of us know what tomorrow holds, but we know that today we have been commissioned and commanded to worship God while we still have time. There is no coincidence that, it's, it's not just a random coincidence that mentioned that they sang a hymn and they left the Mount of Olives, right? Singing a hymn is what we do as Christians, yes, but singing a hymn is when we sing something and saying we are now trying to resonate with the deepest part of our souls, the truth of God's truth. That's what singing hymns do, does. And this is what, of, what would have um, changed the disciples' hearts after hearing such difficult words. This is why we sing hymns together. And this is why this is not just a repeat of what I said last week, but yes, let me remind you, that us singing hymns together is not just one small thing. It's an incredible thing that we can do together. That's how we can sing with all of our hearts, lavishly worshiping God because He deserves it. Where were you before Jesus? Weren't you in the depths of sin? Didn't sin have its claws on you and in you? Immovable you were, a slave to sin. And didn't Jesus break off the power of sin over your life 
and give you promise of new life. How much worship does he deserve? How much kind of lavish praise should we give him? And when we do this and partake in the table of Christ, how and in with what attitude should we partake in it? This is not just some small thing that we are doing. My brothers and sisters, this is an incredible thing and a privilege that God has given us that we can worship God as his children and his church. Let's pray. Lord, when we see the contrast between considering you Lord or slave, it's quite scary. And it's, it's, it, honestly, it's daunting. Because these two extremes are things that humanly we cannot handle. But Lord God, by the power of your spirit, your spirit of truth, show us how we ought to worship you, what kind of attitude we should have, what kind of lavish praise you deserve. And Lord, help us as a church to give it to you. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on what we've been shown and given through the word. And if there is a part of you that is not doing what Mary is doing, then lift that to God. Ask the Spirit to change you. Only God can renew your heart, change what has been dead, and bring back to life. And when you call out to God, our God is merciful, and he hears that cry, and he will change you, and you will be born again in the Spirit so that you can love him as he deserves. But be honest in your prayers, and let's take this time to pray.